Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, understanding the basic biology of some of the world's most prevalent diseases. We cannot make sound preventive or therapeutic strategies or tools without really understanding the basic science, basic mechanisms that give rise to disease. In this week's episode, an in-depth conversation with a scientist who is deepening our understanding of conditions like diabetes and heart disease and trying to find ways to treat or prevent them. Plus, he shares the challenges of running a lab that is trying to understand fundamental things about how our bodies work. No matter how creative (laughs) we try to become, our maximum level of creativity is far below the level of complexity of nature. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Monomiro. Non-communicable diseases, or NCDs, are the leading cause of death around the world. And of those NCDs, chronic cardiometabolic conditions, things like heart disease or diabetes, are particularly deadly. These diseases are influenced by a variety of factors, our genes, our environment, our diet. But what's clear is that the burden of these conditions is growing. And while in the past they've been viewed as illnesses of affluence, there are rising rates of NCDs in low- and middle-income countries. And in this week's episode, we're speaking with a scientist who is trying to understand the root causes of these diseases. What goes wrong at the cellular and molecular level to make us sick? My name is Yokan Hotamushligil. I'm James Simmons, professor of genetics and metabolism uh, at the Harvard THN School of Public Health. Since 2014, Gokhan Holomish has led the Sabri Ilker Center, which studies the basic mechanisms of a range of non-communicable diseases. Their research has helped shed light on the molecular basis of obesity, diabetes, and other cardiometabolic disorders, as well as age-associated conditions like neurodegeneration. One of their key findings involved uncovering the role of something called the endoplasmic reticulum in protecting cells from shortages or surpluses of certain molecules. I had the chance to sit down for a wide-ranging conversation with Hoda Mishlagil, where we discussed the burden of cardiometabolic diseases, the importance of basic scientific research in treating and preventing these conditions, and the unique challenges of running a lab like the Sabriolka Center. Take a listen. Your lab focuses a lot of its research on cardiometabolic diseases, things like heart disease, diabetes. Why, why focus your research energy in those areas? Well, I mean, from an impact perspective, these are uh, the problems that, uh, that represents the greatest threat to global health in every part uh, of the world. And so therefore, if you are really hoping to make uh, an impact, these are even if you make a small incremental impact, it is, uh, it is going to have a huge influence on the global scale. So from a discovery perspective, these are extremely challenging. Uh, there is no single explanation for any one of these uh, diseases. Uh, so for some, this may actually be <laughs> a reason to run away from these diseases. But I see that also as a great uh, place of opportunity. If a, a problem is very complex and challenging, that means there's a lot of uh, places that you can make uh, exciting discoveries. So from both uh, discovery perspective and impact perspective, uh, these are very exciting problems to tackle. And I want to talk a little bit more about the complexity in a few minutes, but when you talk about the, the, the these being kind of huge global threats, I mean, what... What's the burden of these diseases? And, and are we seeing changes over time in who's being affected by, by these kinds of conditions? Chronic 
uh, non-communicable diseases, or the way I refer to them is chronic metabolic diseases, one important characteristic of these problems is that they don't come alone. They don't usually, I mean, occasionally they will come alone, but uh, in overwhelming uh, cases, they will come as clusters. So if you have diabetes, you'll have more, much more risk for cardiovascular disease. If you have cardiovascular disease, even some components of cardiovascular disease, uh, you'll have a much higher risk for dementia, stroke. And uh, if you have insulin resistance, you'll have higher likelihood of uh, fatty liver disease, certain cancers, neurodegeneration, bone disease. So in a way, the this cluster uh, actually is uh, very reminiscent of aging. So whatever happens during aging, uh, all of these problems actually happen in the course of uh, metabolic disease, except in a shorter period of time. It's almost an accelerated form of aging. And uh, for this reason, of course, both as part of aging process itself, which is now uh, one of the most important drivers of uh, global health uh, problems, changing demographics, changing the age uh, distribution. And uh, the cluster actually exposes people to multiple diseases, so that also increases the burden uh, tremendously. So if you want to really understand, actually even beyond the importance of uh, metabolic disease in isolation, uh, to also tackle the issues related to aging, healthy aging, you these really uh, understanding these problems is fundamental. So in terms of burden, I mean, I can give you some numbers. They're, they're really, I mean, you can give many numbers, but diabetes, for example, one out of every 10 individuals uh, has diabetes. Right now, close to uh, half a billion people on earth have diabetes. Another half billion have pre-diabetes. So that means within the next 25 years, it is possible, uh, actually more than possible, that the diabetes numbers can double. And the majority of this, of course, comes from low and middle income uh, uh, countries. I mean, diabetes kills close to 5 million uh, people every year. I mean, this burden just of diabetes is more than uh, tuberculosis, malaria, HIV, infectious diarrhea, pneumonia combined and multiplied. I mean, cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death uh, globally. It kills 20 million people uh, every year. One out of every four individuals on Earth, one out of every four individuals on Earth has fatty liver disease. And uh, so uh, really, we are approaching <laughs> uh, it's, uh, really statistically so alarming uh, place that uh, the, the overwhelming majority of the people living on Earth will be suffering from one or uh, multiple uh, combinations of uh, these problems. This is, might be just kind of a big existential question, but I mean, you were just talking about kind of the scale of these, these conditions and kind of the tie into aging. I mean, are we investing enough in these conditions? I mean, like, are we doing enough to invest in, in, in studying these diseases? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say that uh, as the, the burden of uh, disease increase and spread. So it's not just uh, really a problem of uh, higher income countries anymore. Uh, even, for example, in the past uh, decade, diabetes incidence doubled in sub-Saharan Africa. And sub-Saharan Africa, there were countries with 0% diabetes. 
Now it's approaching seven and a half, eight percent uh, of the population with diabetes. And uh, so we, so far it is pretty clear in the majority of these diseases what we have used for preventive measures or to curb the, the pandemic is not very successful because we cannot really stop the increase in disease except for very few examples. For example, in stroke, we've been successful in reducing, but uh, what really comes uh, as a very big surprise is now it started appearing in the young age. So we reduced the, the stroke in the classical uh, age bracket, but now it started popping up at much higher rates in the younger generation. So we really have to fundamentally uh, change the approach. But the unfortunate reality is uh, government-based funding uh, for these problems is not really increasing in proportion to the uh, increasing challenge or the scale of the challenge. In some cases, it is even decreasing. And uh, uh, this is especially true for uh, United States and, and, and Europe. And in some areas of the world, for example, in, in, in China, Singapore, uh, Korea, there, there is, of course, huge investments into science. But uh, there is an, an, another alarm uh, for the governments to re really realize. Because with respect to the co total expenditure of a sc economic scale like America, resource expenditure is nothing, really. It's a very small uh, drop in the bucket. And it is it's very critical. But I mean, life goes on, so we cannot really wait to pursue research and then wait for the governments to be enlightened and then you know, uh, put their actions together. The good thing is there's always a very nice balance. Uh, and so when uh, the governments don't do the right thing, corporations do the right thing, individuals do the right thing, foundations uh, do the right thing. So there's always a, a balance some, somewhat established uh, in this equilibrium. And we actually uh, also, we wouldn't be able to do what we are doing if it was only uh, indexed to government funding. We, would be, we wouldn't be able to do 10% of what we are doing right now. And we are able to enjoy this, uh, I mean, long-term uh, and deep analyses of these big problems uh, because of Sabriul Care Center, which was uh, uh, which became a reality uh, uh, because of the generosity of a family. And you, you, you talk a little about the work you're doing, this kind of really deep analysis. Um, so what are some of the big questions that you're trying to answer? I mean, you, you said a minute ago this kind of need to change the fundamental approach and how we look at these diseases. So, so what are some of the big questions that you and your lab are trying to answer about these conditions? Yeah, so we are a basic science laboratory. And uh, in our laboratory, our big big goal is really to uncover uh, the underlying mechanisms. So why a disease uh, emerges? Why does it emerge uh, so frequently? If uh, half of uh, the humans living on Earth are suffering one form of this disease, does that then relate to our uh, biological infrastructure? Are there vulnerabilities uh, in our biological infrastructure that is not in good match? with the current chapter of human history, because it's very recent. I mean, compared to our biological infrastructure, our lifestyle and current uh, chapter of uh, human history is very young. And it is, and it has happened very rapidly. So when uh, any structure is exposed to a dramatic and rapid change, 
there are cracks <laughs> in the system. And so one possibility is that if we really examine our biological uh, infrastructure and how we respond to things that uh, are presenting risk, then we will be able to pinpoint where those vulnerabilities are and how really we can aim our interventions or preventive strategies to tackle those precise uh, molecular mechanisms. Because in general, what I firmly believe is we cannot make sound uh, preventive or therapeutic uh, strategies or tools without really understanding the basic science, basic mechanisms that give rise to disease. You spoke about the importance of kind of understanding the underlying mechanisms kind of causing a disease. But on the flip side, do you ever are you also looking at, when it comes to aging, for example, the mechanisms that maybe kind of promote healthful aging? So is that also part of the balance here of kind of understanding what what is going right biologically in our bodies when we age in a, in a healthful way? Yeah, so the program that we are trying to build and execute here actually has two, two pillars. Uh, one big one is to understand the natural defenses that are built in uh, human body because human body is very resilient and many of the things we believe are the stresses that set the stage for uh, some of the diseases that we mentioned like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, fatty liver disease are also the stresses when we are exposed to them in a limited manner, we have wonderful defenses so that uh, we can uh, protect ourselves. Let me give you an example. For example, eating. Eating is a very stressful experience. In a very limited period of time, you consume large amount of nutrients and energy. So this actually engages a lot of systems to respond so that they can be properly metabolized, disposed to uh, uh, the proper places, if they are going to be stored, stored in, in order, in a harmless manner, and the byproducts need to be neutralized. So how dramatic is this? For example, your pancreas need to produce liters, liters of enzymes to deal with just your regular uh, eating. Let's say you're a good uh, conscious uh, kind of eater. You eat uh, three times a day and in limited quantities. Just to deal with that, your uh, organs need to remove huge amount of sugar and lipid from your bloodstream. It, to digest this, your pancreas needs to produce enormous amounts of active proteins and then go back to normal. So this is extremely challenging. And, but we, have, we can deal with this. I mean, in an, if you were a snake, for example, a, a python, you have a much, much stronger version of this. You can sit down and eat 10 times your body weight. I mean, imagine eating 600 pounds of food in one sitting, in half an hour. But there is a creature who can do it and still live. But this <laughs> can only happen once in three months. And if it happened every day, the python will get sick and die. Very similar analogy could be uh, constructed for humans. So if you eat 10 times the calories that you're supposed to consume in mo much more frequent uh, intervals, you don't uh, exercise and burn energy, the defense, existing defense system is not going to be enough. 
but it is there. So one really big area is if we find these things, define them molecularly, then maybe we can tickle them a little bit so that they defend the system better. So if we can scale this up a little bit, then we can increase the health span. And this will have, of course, great implications for age-related diseases. And so I'm actually, as a, as a personally, I'm much more interested in living the same amount of time, but in a healthy manner, than much longer with the diseases. So if I was asked, I would say, okay, I'll take X amount of years healthy rather than 2X amount of years unhealthy. <laughs> so it, it is a big part of uh, what we are doing. Well, it's interesting you say that because I think what people, a lot of people hear of treatment or therapy, they think, okay, it's a drug or a pill. But it seems like, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying in a sense is if we can learn how the body naturally defends itself, we can kind of take lessons from that. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like learn what the body is already doing and see if we can just maybe tweak that to find ways to combat something like heart disease? Yeah, I am saying that, except there's been a very important difference that in a very mechanistic and scientific manner. So that could give us actual, actual results. So uh, not conjecture or correlation or observational uh, recommendations or interventions, but really things targeting uh, specific uh, molecular mechanisms involved in these uh, responses. So yes, if we can uh, tickle these mechanisms upward a little bit, uh, we, we know that we can defend the organs and the systems better. And that uh, upscaling can come from many angles. It, it, perhaps uh, some can come in the form of traditional medicines. So we find the molecule, we, can't, we find a switch, and we use a molecule to turn the switch on. So there are examples of that. It is possible that it's not exactly an on-off switch, but it's a dimmer. And then, so that, that dimmer can be turned a little bit uh, more, more gradually upwards or downwards by multiple things, including uh, things that are found in, 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 in our diet or things that we do as part of our daily lives. But only when we tie these together at the molecular level with definitive evidence, then we can make uh, an effective recommendation. Otherwise, we make conjectural recommendations which do not in the long term uh, be effective. So, you know, you need to invest time in understanding the mechanism, you know, which may take a long time, but in the end that pays off in potentially a better treatment or intervention. So better understanding, I have a very firm belief that will result in much more effective strategies to prevent or to treat or to reverse uh, disease. Here also, I mean, even in the treatment area, if you think about all the diseases, there are very, very few diseases that we can treat and cure. So many of the things we can alleviate delay, postpone, but not cure. There is not a single diabetes drug in the market, for example, that cures diabetes. So all the drugs actually alleviate high levels of blood glucose. So uh, even in the drug discovery area, uh, there are many examples that we haven't been able to reach the root causes. And in the preventive arena, uh, the problem is even more challenging uh, because for a long period of time, 
this has not really entered even the arena of preventive medicine, but this has now uh, firmly and strongly entered, and this is the transformational force uh, for global health practices. And uh, so those who actually incorporate this into, these, into their uh, schools and programs and companies and agencies and foundations and NGOs, they will turn out to be successful, and those who cannot will not. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that. So I know your lab has done a, a lot of recent work on cholesterol, for example. So is, is cholesterol an example where we're seeing this play out where you're kind of looking to understand kind of how the body interacts with cholesterol at this basic molecular level? And what have you found, have found in that regard? Yeah, so when we were searching for this built-in mechanisms, uh, we needed to develop uh, a, a model, a way to, a place to ask this question so that we can actually go after a potential defense mechanism or, or a switch or dimmer uh, that uh, tunes our uh, responses. And uh, one part of our program is very much interested in the, in the function of small functional units within the cells called organelles. So those are like mini organs inside every cell that are charged uh, with certain tasks. And, uh, and there's one organelle uh, called endoplasmic reticulum, which I refer to this as the master of all of the, the organelle or all of the mini functional units inside the cell, and also a place uh, that is extremely critical in a cell's ability to monitor its metabolic environment, uh, its food and carbon sources, and what kind of uh, stress responses uh, it should emanate to establish balance and, and health. And so the reason we're uh, obsessed with this, this structure is because we think this is where you would find the most powerful defense mechanism. Because this is like a, 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 an octopus with millions of tentacles reaching every part uh, of the cell and essentially all uh, functional units of a cell. So when we were thinking about this, uh, we realized that there's an important gap in uh, management of one nutrient, one critical nutrient and building block in the cells, which is cholesterol. And uh, so cholesterol is, on one hand, extremely essential. So a cell cannot function or even construct itself without cholesterol. On the other hand, it is a volatile molecule. It's very toxic and reactive. So the cell does not have tolerance to have uh, free cholesterol molecules floating around because they will cause a lot of damage. And so when we look at the approach to cholesterol homeostasis, <clears throat> the whole paradigm actually is built on the, the fact that cells need cholesterol. Therefore, when there is a reduction in the cholesterol, a, a mechanism kicks in to replenish it immediately. But we realize that the other side of the coin uh, has an important knowledge gap because the cell cannot drive its uh, vehicles just by hitting the gas. It needs a, a break because if you push the cholesterol upwards, then how do you, do you stop uh, before it becomes uh, generating its toxic effects? So we thought this was a good intellectual framework to look for that break, and we thought this uh, would be uh, present in the endoplasmic reticulum because this is a place where it can 
accommodate a sensor. And then uh, it will be responsive to cholesterol, and then it will have the capability to launch an adaptive program or uh, countermeasures to mitigate the toxic effects of cholesterol. There was a molecule sitting in the ER sensing, monitoring, <coughs> and sensing cholesterol. And when there is a, when the cellular cholesterol reached a dangerous level, it, it gets activated and kicks in a, a program which uh, neutralizes all the damaging effects uh, of this. And very interestingly, so you ask me, why, why do you do basic science? How do you go from basic science and, uh, <coughs> to something relevant to human disease? And uh, maybe a preventive or therapeutic measure. So in this case, of course, we are far from that. But uh, even this basic discovery immediately helps us to make sense out of many things. Uh, for example, uh, we know that in, the, in humans, there are mutations identified, genetic variations identified in this gene which are also associated with the same metabolic problems that we observe in the cells. And then we, when we make these mutations <clears throat> in the animals, the animals develop a, a metabolic disease, and particularly, for example, a very severe form of uh, fatty liver disease uh, in the liver and, and other uh, metabolic problems if it spreads to, to other organs. So s suddenly, by, by identifying a, a molecule from a very basic question, I mean, you can immediately find the path to a condition in, in, in humans <coughs> that creates uh, metabolic problems, a combination of metabolic diseases. So the next step, of course, is, is very challenging. So, okay, we find this, the switch or the lever uh, or the counter or the dimmer, whatever you call it. But how are we going to really develop the tools to, to manage uh, this uh, control mechanism? So that is, for example, now what we're working on in our lab, including understanding things that naturally engage this, including uh, natural uh, nutrients and metabolites. We're collaborating with industry to see if we can find ways to replenish this molecule. Because what's amazing is, if we take it in, in the preclinical setting, if we take the most severe form of fatty liver disease and then deliver this molecule through gene therapy mm -hmm. right to the liver, in two weeks, that liver can turn into completely normal liver, completely normal liver with no uh, sign of disease, no sign of inflammation, no sign of fibrosis, no uh, sign of metabolic abnormalities no sign of lipid accumulation. But can we uh, translate in this into humans? So we don't know the answer to this question, but we're, for example, uh, at that stage, this is not something we can do here. So we form an alliance with industry. And I mean, this here, I have to also say, the uh, one of the greatest things, at least in my experience in Harvard University, is the presence of Office of Technology Development. And uh, so the group here, they have been so helpful for us. When we discover things like this, they bring us together with the interested parties in industry. And then uh, when we sit in the table, then we have the opportunity to form alliances. And they, they set the table for us. And I'm very grateful for that. And we had many successful examples uh, of this. This is obviously probably the, the major question, but I guess for, for someone who's really maybe not familiar with this process, what is that biggest 
What is the biggest barrier then from that step where, okay, we understand what's happening mechanistically, but we still are far away from a treatment. What is the biggest gap there? Is it finding an effective target? Is it finding a way to deliver a therapy? What is the biggest barrier there to, to, to bring you from the discovery to a treatment way down the line? If we look at the, the general uh, trends for a discovery and what kind of path it follows uh, you know, to reach an application, it, is, it greatly varies from uh, one discovery to the other, one molecule to the other. So for example, if you find a protein that controls an important process and you need to develop a new chemical to turn this protein on or off, which is the basically the the classic uh, drug development uh, framework, this is very challenging. It is very difficult to, to define how exactly you're going to do that, then find the molecules, make sure the molecules are consumable, safe, and effective, and then translate into clinical practice, especially for chronic diseases, which is a very, very, very big problem because of the cost cost of the clinical trials and approval process. Uh, so th that is very challenging. Sometimes you find very easy things. I mean, for example, a number of years ago, uh, we find a very simple lipid uh, that uh, has fascinating biology uh, in the body. And, but th this is one out of thousands of lipids. So it took us uh, 15 years to find this lipid. And uh, it took someone three months to produce and sell it. And it is now, without even uh, going through any uh, of the difficulties that I mentioned for a, a synthetic molecule, it is now uh, sold. You can go and buy it if you want. So sometimes it's extremely fast. This is also unhealthy. And uh, so the, the, the nature of the discovery really is a big determinant. So that's why actually, I mean, one of the things we, we really aim to do in the Subregal Care Center is to find a, a, a platform where we can find more of this kind of molecules. Simple molecules that are easy to make, safe to consume, and uh, cheap for distribution to large uh, sections of the society. But it requires a large investment and, and time-wise to really uh, identify these needles in the haystack. It really varies, but we have to use multiple uh, paths to, to, you know, at least see one uh, positive outcome from our life uh, work. And uh, so for many labs, uh, this one lifetime or one professional lifetime is not enough to see the results of a discovery applied to a clinic. And so I feel we've been very fortunate, at least we are testing. So we haven't quite seen the, the use of it, but at least we have lived to see our discoveries actually being tested in humans. So my great hope is uh, I will not die before I see at least the results, positive or negative. So not die in curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> and so to jump off of that, I mean, I think there are, you mentioned the, you, these kind of finding these needles in haystacks combined with the complexity of each of these diseases. So how do you, as someone who's kind of leading a lab, how do you set your priorities? How do you kind of decide this is what we're going to investigate, this is what my scientist should be looking at? How do you how do you balance all those priorities? This is actually extremely challenging on one hand, very simple on the other hand. So uh, every day, uh, of course, we have 
is a, a, a very high level of excitement, a big appetite about uh, science. So we, we almost suffer from uh, a scientific intellectual version of the chronic metabolic diseases that are related to excess. So, so we always live with this danger that our appetite is much larger than what we can actually manage and handle. But we try to, the way we deal with that is we always stay in the harbor. So we never really venture into the, into the seas, but we let go some lines and then try to bring uh, things, the treasures of the sea into the harbor. So this is my, my, my main principle. So we have two main questions in this lab. And for 25 years, we have never departed from those two main questions. And so everything else that we ventured in the wild world, we tried to form some links uh, with, with, this, with the main harbor. So that actually allowed us to make some advances in those m major questions. And then, but at the same time, diversify our approach uh, with, with these little uh, lines that extended uh, from the main, main core uh, focus. But it is difficult because, uh, I mean, science has become a very big enterprise. And uh, Many questions. I think the low. There are no low-hanging fruits anymore. <laughs> so all of those are, are collected, and it, it takes a tremendous amount of effort to understand the process, and it oftentimes uh, attracts you to to fields uh, away from the the, the harbor. So uh, in in those instances. Of course, we, we also know that discoveries, you cannot make any discovery in your comfort zone. I mean, you have to get out of your comfort zone if you want to make a discovery. So we collaborate. And so we, rather than building platform after platform, expertise after expertise, so we have chosen to be very transparent about what we're doing. So we have a, a really good cohort of people that we trust and both to their judgment and integrity. And we don't mind opening our dis uh, discoveries or ongoing work to the world, and we collaborate. So uh, these are some of the the, the methods uh, we use uh, to prioritize. And then sometimes, of course, within these lines of activity, certain areas, uh, because of our lack of imagination, or lack of resource, or lack of technology, we cannot make any advance. So they naturally kind of die out. You mentioned a few minutes ago this idea that, you know, a lot of times when you start off, you know, an area of research, when you, where you end up might be very different from where you started. I mean, I guess how, how do you kind of encourage the, the young scientists in your lab to kind of be open-minded in what they do, to kind of have a little almost creativity, if you will, and kind of as they're approaching their science? Yeah, I, I don't have a like six C's of most creative scientists uh, approach or anything of that nature. Uh, but there are some things that I strongly try to advocate in, in our environment. And the, the first thing is, you know, creativity does not come from the skies. And there's no mystical place where you go and drink from the fountain of creativity or the fifth dimension from which it will be transmitted to you. There, there is no such thing. And uh, so the, really, I mean, number one source of creativity is exposing yourself to the existing knowledge in, in different uh, dimensions to the extent possible. So uh, 
most of the things that we admire are product of extremely hard work. And I, I mean, oftentimes I give, uh, for example, a, a, a Mike, Michelangelo's uh, products or, uh, or the statue David. I mean, th these things, yes, they're great, uh, but they, they're not produced uh, in a month. And people spend five, six, seven years carving a piece of stone produce a masterpiece and science is, is no different and uh, so that means <laughs> uh, people really need to do a tremendous amount of reading talking uh, exposure to different fields so that you can actually find where the interesting things at the juncture of the fields and uh, so mo most often th th this is where you find sources of creativity and talking to your friends and colleagues and the second is actually, the second principle is no matter how creative <laughs> uh, we try to become or how creative we believe we uh, truly are, our maximum level of creativity is far below the level of complexity of nature. And therefore, it is only a fool's game to predict what is really happening inside a cell inside an organ, inside an organism or human body. And uh, therefore, the, I think number one productive path uh, for science is to get used to failure or to get really, even I say actually enjoy being wrong. Because if you don't enjoy being wrong, then you won't be able to learn uh, from the, the greatest creative source and complexity, which is biology itself. So how can we then learn? So this is really the teaching of science, in my view, is you really need to learn to look into your experiments and then listen, hear, see what the experiment is telling or showing you. And how can you do that? This is a place where you can control. So you can control experiments. So you can set up your experiments so that you control as many variables as you can, so that you can actually hear the, the voice or see the picture. So this is something, for example, that is very important, and this is what the scientist can do. And the more objectively you can look into your experiments, the better chances that you will learn something very interesting <laughs> about biology that you were not able to imagine in the first place. It's almost like this idea that, that failure isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like, I mean, it might be it might be bad in the moment, but it seems like invariably you'll 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 learn something from your failures. Oh, I mean, failure is not even a good word actually for science, uh, because I mean, science is a, a task of impossibility. I mean, it's extremely frustrating, and I mean, you're really uh, trying to to conquer something that is not possible to conquer. And so failure is given. I mean, I think it's not a consideration. I think I'm more enjoying it or, or getting really frustrated beyond uh, productivity is, the, is the, the distinction I'm trying to make. So being wrong is given. Are you able to enjoy this <laughs> is, is the issue. So, so, so going from that note to the question where I wanted to ask, I mean, you've been... 
you've now been doing this work for 25 years now. I mean, you've talked a lot about kind of the, 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 I mean, the potential stress involved, I guess. But so what excites you most about going to the lab every day? I mean, as you continue to do this work, is it, is it working with young scientists is, or is it that possibility of kind of uncovering something new about nature? What excites you most? Yeah, so I think at different, <laughs> different stages of life, uh, I probably have different answers for this. Uh, it, it also, of course, uh, like ideas not coming from the sky. Scholars also don't fall from the, the sky. I mean, you, you start as a, as a green fruit, and hopefully you ripe a little bit uh, over the course. So, and this is very s small. I mean, think about an apple. It will take 50 years to, to grow, and then uh, one bite to consume. So this is uh, what a scientist is. Uh, so at different stages, uh, th there are different priorities. And then now I feel like I have, I'm not so green as, as I was uh, maybe a while ago. So I, I am learning to, to appreciate and enjoy different things about science and find different sources of excitement. But one thing that doesn't change is this uh, small hope that you will see something uh, that's something for the first time or something that hasn't been seen or known uh, before. I mean, however insignificant or unimportant that might be or no, no, nobody may care about it, but it's, it's exciting. It's a privilege that doesn't exist uh, in, in any others. It is difficult to enjoy this, I have to say. I mean, this is a little bit romantic way of talking about science. But normal I mean, scientific practice is, it can be extremely unpleasant and stressful and frustrating. But at this stage in my career, what excites me the most actually is the people. And, uh, and people in two ways. One is maybe unlike most other professions, if not all other professions, uh, science is a place where people can unite and pay little dividends to their differences, whether they're ethnic differences, religious differences, gender issues, uh, political, social, lifestyle, uh, whatever, that people uh, discriminate each other uh, relentlessly. There is one area which, with a little bit hope, to overcome this is science. And this is one tremendous pleasure. I mean, when you go to lab, you find all kinds of people uh, that uh, can overcome what they bring as their <laughs> cultural uh, or national or religious uh, baggages and leave them at the door and, you know, and enter and unite. So this, I am absolutely fascinated. And I feel that maybe, especially today, where everything is so polarized. There is no, nothing more really powerful than science to overcome those polarizations and unite. And I live that through, I mean, daily in my life, which I enjoy very much. But even more important than that is really these people, you have the opportunity to touch uh, someone's life and change its trajectory. So maybe this is a function of aging, but the mentoring has become uh, the highest really source of uh, gratification for me. And in, 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 in many ways, and in also some selfish ways, because I realize that I won't be able to finish 
the, the project that I have started ever. No one will ever finish it. And so rather than focusing on my uh, unit of success, so if I think about the, the problem, uh, the more people you put on this problem, the more likely that one day it will be solved, or one day one of these people will make impact. So uh, I think maybe uh, to conclude, one, the greatest privilege uh, for a scientist is to be shielded from this brutal world a little bit so that actually he or she can focus on science itself and in, an, in not a daily, monthly, yearly basis, but for a longer period of time and with, uh, with sufficient uh, power. And this is where I want to come back to the importance of the center for us. And, uh, and the people who support science uh, actually can make this possible. And the best example is Sabri Ulker Center. So having this center gives us this opportunity so that we don't always have to describe what exactly we're going to do to funding agencies, but venture into uh, a little bit uh, uncomfortable or uncertain paths. And uh, so this is a very critical thing, and I, I feel very privileged and, and extremely grateful uh, to enjoy this opportunity. And Maybe lastly, you, you don't really have to be a scientist to love science. So there are many ways of loving science. <laughs> and uh, so this also is a, is a great uh, way of loving science and advancing science and supporting science. And uh, we have been fortunate to do it. That was my conversation with Gokhan Hodemishlegel about the basic scientific research being conducted at his lab, the Sabriokra Center. If you want to learn more about Hona Mishlegel's work and the work of this lab, we'll have much more information on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. That's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify.